because if we don't develop ourselves, we have less to give to the rest of the world. But here's the shift. When I was 16, I was focused on my own development so that I could win. And the difference, I think, for me is I'm focused on my own self-development so that I can serve. And I think that's, a, for me, an extraordinarily big shift. A small shift inwardly, but a big shift in my capacity to be of service to the world. Good morning, good afternoon and good evening everybody. This is Ben Morton and welcome to episode 82 of the podcast in which we are joined by Scott Shute. Scott is the former head of mindfulness and compassion at LinkedIn, a role he effectively created for himself and after years as the vice president of global operations also at LinkedIn. Scott describes and thinks of himself as operating at the intersection of the workplace and ancient wisdom traditions. He blends his experience as a Silicon Valley executive with his lifelong practice and passion as a wisdom seeker and teacher. In his most recent role at LinkedIn, as I said, Scott was the head of mindfulness and compassion programs. He has been a pioneer in creating workplace mindfulness programs and advancing the discussion and conversation around compassion in the work context. He has continued this pioneering journey as the author of the highly acclaimed book, The Full Body Yes. In this week's episode, in this episode, we spoke about his own leadership journey and as he describes it, his journey from me to we. We also touched on what mindfulness and compassion looked like at LinkedIn and how they set out to measure it. And finally, as you'd expect, we touched on and spoke about his new book. But before we get into this episode, I've got a little opportunity for you. It's an opportunity to give you your five minutes of fame, if you like. I would love to start bringing some guests onto the show for five minutes to talk about a particular episode, what they learned from it, and how it's helped them as a leader or in day-to-day life. So if you've got a favourite episode, if you've applied something from it, just send me an email to chat at ben-morton.com. My email is in the show notes or on my website, but drop me that email telling me what episode you loved, what you got from it, and then I'll get back in touch with you and we can hopefully record a five-minute clip to include on a future episode. But let's park that for the time being and without any further ado, let's get back to this episode and please enjoy my conversation with Scott Shute. Scott, the very first question I love to ask every guest that comes on the show now, and I always give this preamble, I think it's a very easy question to ask, potentially not such an easy one to answer, and that really is, what does leadership mean to you? Sure. I think it's inspiring people towards a shared vision. Everybody has this idea of where we want to go, and when we're all going together, that's the first piece. And then it's being able to communicate and inspire and lead the way towards that shared vision. Amazing. And how would you say your career has sort of shaped you as a leader? And what are really some of the the main lessons you've learned along the way that kind of you reflect on at this stage? 
Yeah, it's interesting. You know, every single experience shapes us as a leader, not just the ones at work, not just the ones when we're in leadership positions. My COVID project was I wrote a book, which maybe we'll talk about today. But in that, I talk about my own journey, and all of it is geared towards leadership. So when I was a kid, when I was um, 15 or 16 years old, I was super competitive. I was an athlete. I was competitive in school. But I was only thinking about myself. Right? I was only thinking about my own achievements. And then life is the best teacher because over time I got married, I had kids, I became a manager and then a leader and then a leader of a big organization over time. And at each one of those kind of increasing responsibilities, you might say, I learned that it's not about me, <laughs> right? It's uh you, you get married and all of a sudden it's like, oh, for me to be happy, we have to be happy. Or at work, unless my team is successful, I'm not successful. So I think all of this has taught me it's this journey from me to we. Then as a leader, you have kind of two jobs. One job is to develop yourself, you know, to really let your own light shine, like your own genius, your own set of skills, your own experiences shine. But then in service of the larger thing, not just in service of your own, whatever, your own achievements, but in service of this larger goal. So that's been my own journey. Well, there's so many questions there already that are buzzing around my head, as is, as is normally the case. Like, I'm interested in your piece there around letting your own light shine. Like, were you, as an individual, always clear what your own light was? And to what degree do you think people in leadership roles can fall into the trap of carry on the, the the metaphor, right? Perhaps trying to grab someone else's light and shine someone else's light and end up being a little bit in inauthentic. Do you? Oh, there's, there's so many things to talk about just in that one question. So for me, I was confused about which of my passions or which of my talents to exercise. So as an example, in high school, my older brother was an engineer. My much older brother is an engineer. And so since since I was 10 years old, I wanted to be an engineer like my big brother because I was good at math and science. And that just seemed like the thing you did if you were good at math and science. But when I was uh, in my senior year, my last year in high school, I was the lead in our high school musical. Right. So I also have a musical talent. I could sing. And oh, wow, this this being on stage was such a rush. <laughs> so it's super confusing. I thought, I thought, well, maybe I'll move to New York and be a singer or an actor. Wait, much to the chagrin of my father, who was, <laughs> would rather me take a practical route. So I felt this tear between my different passions. And it really felt like a, a black or white type of choice. You know, on the one hand, let's call it the left hand, I was going to go get an engineering degree and join corporate America. And this is in the kind of the late 80s. And I don't know if anybody remembers, but there was this movie called Wall Street. Yeah. And Michael Douglas played a character called Gordon Gecko, And his theme was, or his motto was, greed is good. And, and this was, it was kind of awful, right? And this was my 17-year-old brain's idea of what corporate America was like. It seemed like a terrible thing. And on the other hand, you know, I'd kind of found my spiritual path. I kind of wanted to be a bohemian. I kind of wanted to move to New York and be a singer and follow this more like passion project. And that felt, it really felt like a black or white choice, a, a hard left or a hard right choice. And over time, well, actually there's another part of that story. One day I was in contemplation, you know, I was, 
I was doing my exercises, my mental exercises, and I was having a conversation with whatever you want to call it, the divine, the bigger thing, my deepest self. And I was asking, I was kind of throwing up my hands in the air saying, I, I don't know what to do. What, what, what should I do here? And I got what I call the full body. Yes. I just, I just knew the answer and it came along with, you might call it intuition or a knowingness. And that, that message was, well, maybe you can change work from the inside out. You know, and I, I'm 17 or 18 years old. What do I do with that? So I kind of tuck it away. But what I learned over time, and yes, with every job, I tried to make it a place that was good. I tried to make it a place that felt good for everybody involved. But over time, what I realized was that even work, especially work, is a place where we can exercise all of these talents. So I didn't just use my math and science skills. I did end up using my people development skills and now even my creativity skills. You know, so as an example, I, I still like music. I do photography. I have this artistic side. And more and more, I'm bringing that into work itself as part of what I do, as part of my presentations. And now I find myself, you know, 30 years later, standing on stage. So the performing part, you know, connecting with people. Um, but still in the world of business. So I found a way over all this time to use all of those things. And did you find sort of holding on to some of those other interests and passion, like the be it the photography or the creativity or, or the performing, kind of when you was sort of doing more of your corporate job, let's say over at LinkedIn, did holding on to those things help you with that elusive kind of balance that so many of us kind of seek? Was that Was that quite conscious for you? Yes, I absolutely wanted to make it a part of it. Because even at 18, you know, having these conversations with my dad, you know, we kind of talked about how, okay, I was going to go do math and science and engineering, but I could still play music on the weekend. I could still have it be part of my passion project, which is true. It's still a big part of my life. And then over time, I sought to make all of these whole Right? And there's there's different seasons I think we go through in life. There's seasons where it's really hard to do that in the job that you have. And then there's seasons where you can kind of shape your role a little bit. One of the concepts I really like, there's this Japanese concept called Ikigai. I-K-I-G-A-I. Ikigai. And it loosely translates into life's purpose or meaning of life. And it's essentially a Venn diagram of four circles. And the four circles are what I'm good at, what I love to do, what someone will pay me for, and what the world needs, right? So what I'm good at, what I love to do, what I can get paid for, what the world needs. And I think that if we continually use this as a filter for the choices in our career and try to get closer and closer and closer to the center over time, that's a really powerful way to, to look at our lives and our careers. Mm. And is that where you are now? I think so. I, th I think I'm in the middle of the bullseye of my ikigai. It's uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah, how's that feel? <laughs> it's it feels great. <laughs> yeah. So I've been consciously trying to do this for a long time, but it took you know 25 years for me to get to the point where it really feels real. Mm. And even now, as I left LinkedIn after a long career there, I left LinkedIn about six months ago. And so I call myself a free range chicken, you know, <laughs> kind of doing consulting and coaching and speaking and whatnot. But even as a free range chicken, you know, there are choices that we can make that pull us away from our true desire. 
right? Because we can get stuck in our mind of what we think we should be doing or whatever nonsense. So even when there's no constraints on us, we can still make choices that aren't really aligned with that that deepest center of the bullseye. Yeah. And if you had your time again, do you think you'd have made any choices to get to that bullseye quicker or is or is the the journey just part of the part of the process i think sometimes we can put ourselves under pressure can't we if we don't feel we're in there like oh i've got got to get there i've heard about this icky guy concept if i'm not there i'm i'm not living a good good life but for me kind of the journey is part of the fun i think absolutely i think look i was aware of a lot of these things as a teenager right so in other words i had information I think there's an arc of learning that happens. We go from information to knowledge to wisdom. Information is you've heard the concept before, yeah. right? Knowledge is like, okay, I can start to put it into practice. I can start to see what that like is like. And then wisdom is you're actually living it. Like it's in your bones. You, you know the lesson deeply. And I think each of us, for everything that we go through, have to experience it to really get wisdom. We can all have information, right? We're sharing information here. And probably nothing we talk about today is going to be new. But hopefully, sometimes we come across information that sparks something in us that causes action. And it's that action that moves us into knowledge. And then it's the continual action, the building a habit and living it, then it turns into wisdom. So the short answer is all of the information in the world has always been there for a long, long time. There's almost nothing new, but it's the living it, right? If you think about it, why would there ever be war again, right? We, we've all lived through it. I mean, as people, you know, over, over countless generations, but each, each generation has to learn it for themselves. So true. And when you're running a business, it can be so frustrating. <laughs> you're like, oh, man, why do I have to learn this lesson myself? <laughs> but exactly. You, but you do. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's funny. Um, one of my favorite quotes is from James Clear. He wrote the book Atomic Habits, which I highly recommend. And the, the big part of the book is our lives do not rise to the level of our goals, they fall to the level of our systems, mm-hmm. which is genius, right? And as I was kind of poking around, I found that he wasn't the first one to say it. Archilochus, and I may have the pronunciation wrong, but Archilochus, who was a Greek philosopher, said it in like 600 BC. Yeah. (laughs) And not to take anything away from James Clear, he's put it in a context and he's made it live again and he's made it powerful for our day and age. But it's not new. Yeah. But to your point, right, some people will take that information from James Clear and how his put it will spark them to action. Other people will go back and read some of the initial translations of all of the Stoics and that will spark the insight and, and action for them, isn't it? It's just the different mediums, different presenters will serve up the information in a way that, that resonates with different people. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious to take you back, Scott, to something you shared a few minutes back when you said as a younger man you was doing some of your I think you called it your your mental exercise and you kind of got to what you call the, the the full body yes like what what was that what did that kind of mental exercise kind of look like for you and is that something that's still very much part of your routine or systems sure when I was about 13 I guess you could say I would say that I had a spiritual awakening I found this particular path 
and it came with a set of, you know, exercises, you could call it, I would call it spiritual exercises. From the outside, you might say it was meditation. Uh, other people might call it contemplation. We're kind of splitting hairs here. Yeah. But for me, it's that practice of going within and kind of tuning into, uh, I would say, tuning into the divine, right? For me, it's tuning into myself as soul. This idea that I am soul and I'm li this little spark of the divine. And I'm wearing this personality of Scott, the mind, the body, and the emotions. But this deepest part of me is soul. And so for me, I have this daily practice, you know, 20, 30 minutes, where I'm just practicing, you know, kind of tuning in to that place. And I find that when I can get to the point where I'm living from the perspective, from this higher perspective, instead of the perspective of the mind or the body of emotions, then things just go better for me. Life is just easier and happier and more fulfilling. Were there times when, I guess I'm maybe thinking about kind of when you was doing, she did a really senior role at LinkedIn, right? Kind of in, mm -hmm. let's say in the busiest periods when you was at LinkedIn, did you always manage to continue that practice or did sometimes you find it hard and it did it fall by the wayside? Because again, I mean, that's one of the, the, the challenges that, that people have. I've played around on and off with mindfulness meditation for, for several years. Like I'm in a particularly bad patch now where I'm struggling to get it back into my routine because things have changed. So what, what what's your journey been like there? Sure. It has absolutely always been part of my life. And it's also absolutely gone through seasons of, I don't want to say better or worse, but let's say seasons of me being more regular about my practice and me not being regular about my practice. You know, there was a time, in fact, my busiest, I mentioned I lived in Surrey. I lived in this little town called Cobham, which you may know. And for I was there for two years and we had two little kids and I was, I had a big job. I was traveling once a month to Dublin. I was traveling once a quarter to Asia and, you know, two or three times a year to America. And we had just moved to the UK. We didn't know anybody. And my wife was first pregnant with our second and then had the little one. Like, oh, my goodness. Life is about as full and about as, quote, hard yeah. as it can get. You know, you throw on the challenges of work, right, of of some very hard things that happened at work and very hard things that happened personally. And yeah, <laughs> things it becomes a challenge to find 20 minutes a day. And that's the time that we need it the most. Yeah. Right. There's this old, this old story about the student goes to the teacher and says, Hey teacher, you know, how much should I be meditating every day? And this is the old times, right? So don't worry about the times. But the teacher says, you know, about an hour every day is probably right. But hey, if you're so busy that you don't have time for it and your life is falling apart and you just can't, you just can't find the time, you should be doing two hours. <laughs> uh, and maybe in today's world, let's call that, you know, 15 minutes and half an hour. But, <laughs> yeah. but the point is true, right? When we're under... When we're under the gun, when we're under stress, like this is the most important time for us to find time to carve away, whether it's an extra seven minutes in the car park, you know, as you pull up, you know, if you ever commute again right before work, or even if it's three minutes before a meeting, before you pick up the phone or we have a Zoom call just to like get back into a good place from wherever you've been. I see now how important it is and how even more important it is when things are hard. 
uh, again, that's just such a powerful lesson and um, it just highlights so many of the points that we're, we're talking about. So I had, uh, in fact, it was today, it was just uh, a couple of hours back. I was, because I used to be in the army, right? I'm everywhere five minutes early. So I was log- logged into my team Teams meeting with a, with a client. PA drops me a line saying, oh, sorry, Ben, they're, they're running late. Can we delay till quarter past? I'm tapping him back. Yeah, sure, no worries. I'm like, ah, oh, yes, I can quickly do ten more minutes emails and just catch up. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of the wrong answer, right? That was here's me saying I'm struggling to find time to do do my yeah. mindfulness practice now. There was a golden opportunity there, but it's that it's that lure of the the task and the inbox that can just pull us away, right? And we know deep deep down that actually what's going to be more beneficial tapping out a few emails or taking 10 minutes for me it's absolutely 10, 10 minutes for me yeah let, so actually let's let's continue this thread so if you want to build a practice there are a few things first it starts with intention you know that that you know why you're doing it like a lot of people if i ask people hey have you ever meditated it's usually like 90 or 95% of the people who have but if I ask, okay, who has a daily practice? Okay, it's like 5% yeah. or you know, 10%. So everybody in the middle has tried something and they can't get it to stick. And I think a lot of times it's like exercise. You know, if you invited me, okay, we're going to go to the gym and we're going to do bench press, three sets of whatever. I might go with you the first time, but then if I'm on my own, am I going to go if I don't know why I'm there? Unless I have a really clear goal, I, I fall off of the exercise routine as well, right? So it starts with this clear intention, and most people don't have a clue what that is. But you start with a clear intention. It could be, I want to be a better version of myself. I want to not scream at my kids so much. I want to be more calm. I want to have more clarity, whatever those things are. And then, back to James Clear, you have to build a system. Our lives do not rise to the level of our goals, the goal you just said you wanted. They fall to the level of our systems. So in, until we build a system in, nothing will change. You might do it two or three times, but then it'll stop because you don't have a system. So in your case, Ben, it could be the system is if I ever get five minutes, right? This is a, a mental note. If I ever get five minutes where a client cancels or I'm early, I'm just going to do whatever. Do whatever your practice is. But that's an intention. Or for me, myself, I, I love my calendar. My, if, if it's not on calendar, it doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. So I, I put it in the calendar. Um, and then there's these, these little moments, right, that you find yourself. So I have my calendar entry where every day I'm going to do it for me at 6.30 or 7 o'clock in the morning. I'm going to find these five minutes. And then whatever, before you go to bed, before I turn out the lights, I'm going to do another three minutes or five or seven or 22 or whatever it is. But build the system. Another part of the system could be Ben and I could become accountability buddies for each other. Every day, we're going to text each other. Hey, I did mine. Did you do yours? And then, so I'm doing this right now with (laughs) push-ups with my friend Brian. Since the pandemic, since, you know, I've been doing push-ups for two years, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for me, you know. And uh, I've only missed two or three days in two years of push-ups. I'll find myself in the airport, you know, busy. I'm like, oh, oh no, it's Wednesday. Love I got to do push-ups. Love it. And I'll be doing push-ups in the middle of the, <laughs> the terminal. <laughs> so find a system and put the system in place and then you have a chance. Yeah. I don't know if it was um, in James Clear's book, actually, but one of the other things I come across recently around 
habits and systems. It's just how the human brain really thrives on, I guess, what in computer terms we would call almost conditional formatting, which is what you said there, like, if this, then that. So if I suddenly find I've got a spare five minutes between calls, then I will plug into the car map and do do five minutes. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's a, the second part. If I were to summarize Atomic Habits into two parts, the first one's a quote we shared. The second one is around identity, changing your identity. And this is, it's the talk track you have about yourself, about that habit. So for most people, back to my statistics before, let's say there's 80% of people who have tried meditation, but they don't have a regular habit. So probably their inner talk track is, I've tried it, I can't get it to work. Well, it's shifting that to the inner talk track of, I am a meditator. Yeah. If, if this is what you want, right? I'm not trying to push it on you, but if this is what you want, it's like, oh, I am somebody who meditates every day. I am somebody who meditates every chance I get, you know, when there's a five minute lull in the conversation. And when we, sh and this works for everything with all different types of habits. When we shift to that mindset, it, it just changes who we are. Yeah. And then we're much more likely if that five minutes happens, we're much more likely, oh, yeah, I'm, a, I'm the person who does that versus I'm the person who crams another five minutes of email because that's what I do. I'm trying. I'm, I'm efficient. Yeah. Every five minutes, I'm going to bang out email. So we have to we have to change our inner talk track and our mindset as well. Earlier on as well, you mentioned that that moment where you was doing some of your mental exercise. You said you got this, what you now call the, the, the full body. Yes. And you said you put it away because you wasn't sure what you do with that. You must have put it away for quite some time because that's the title of your, <laughs> of your, of your book, yes. book, right? So to, talk to us, yeah. tell us a little bit about the book, if you will. Sure. So right before COVID started, I was in the car with one of my friends. We were driving home from this event we were doing together and he, he's driving and he gets this funny look and he looks over at me and he says, the universe has told me to tell you it's time to write your book. <laughs> and we both laughed, <laughs> you know, and then I kind of checked in. I'm like, yeah, that feels right. Cause I've been thinking about writing a book since I was 15. Uh, and it just never felt right. And just like a fruit or a vegetable, it was ripe. It was time. It was the right time. It was the right season. And the book is really, you know, I was in this role. I was head of mindfulness, and compassion programs at LinkedIn for three years. And I, I wanted to write a book about okay, what does that mean? How do you, how can you be compassionate? And what I realized as I started kind of poking around in my own journey was that being compassionate, 99% of it is about us internally, our own mess. It's about our own development, getting out of the way. You know, and I, I kind of talked about it a little bit, but that's this journey from me to we, because my 16 year old self, I wasn't thinking about what my parents were going through or what my mm -hmm. sisters were going through. I was thinking about me. And so in other words, I wasn't very compassionate. I was focused on me. So it's this journey of first self-awareness, understanding more about ourselves and really appreciating ourselves and then taking responsibility for ourselves, right? Kind of moving from life is happening to me and we're kind of a victim to life is happening for me. And what if I was more of a partner with life? And when we do all of that stuff, then we're more developed so that we can look at somebody else or be with somebody else and do those same three things for them. We can be aware of them. We can learn to appreciate them and we can learn to kind of take action or responsibility on their behalf. So the book is, you know, it's that journey from me to we. It's story driven. It's a lot of my own stories and stories from industry. But uh, I think it's fun. It, and it was 
transformational for me to write it as well. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to to picking a copy up and, re- and reading it, actually. And the, the reason I say that, um, listening to you, obviously we've spoke a little bit before, and listening to you talking about it again now, sort of a few years, seven years ago, probably I kind of wrote a leadership book myself, which was my journey. And at the end of it, sort of a series of leadership, sort of print, my leadership principles started to emerge one of which was leadership is about others, but it starts with us. Now, at the time, that was probably fairly surface level. What I was really driving at was, if you're going to, I guess it's the um, airplane gas mask mask analogy. So if you're going to serve and lead others, you've got to look after yourself first. So I was largely talking about physical health, physical well-being, resilience. There was a little bit was I was starting to think about really authenticity being clear on who you are and your values so you can lead consistently but probably over the past three or four years sort of my development journey the more and more i'm starting to realize that starting with us it goes way deeper and i think it's a similar thing to to what you're starting to talk about here like that self-love self-compassion kind of all of that stuff that kind of when you know yourself much better. You can really honestly look in the the, the mirror. It, it helps you on that journey from from me to we, I guess. Absolutely. I think you know you can open up a news browser or a newspaper if those things still exist, <laughs> yeah. and look at the world and say, "Whoa, this place is a mess!" Right. And throughout my career, I've been tempted to quit my job and go help a cause, whatever that is. Right. It could be political system. It could be racial divide. It could be the education system. It could be whatever. There's enough problems out in the world to go do whatever. But what I've come to believe is that work itself, or in fact, any context, but work itself can be part of that journey, just as valid of a place of personal development, even spiritual development as a a monastery, an ashram, or backpacking across wherever. But every part of it, if I want to change the world, it starts with me. like, And I know that's kind of a tagline or it's kind of something we throw around, but I really do believe our most important job, if you will, or task is to develop ourselves. Because mm. if we don't develop ourselves, we have less to give to the rest of the world. And if we do focus our own development, but here's the shift. When I was 16, I was focused on my own development so that I could win, mm. right? And the difference, I think, for me is I'm focused on my own self-development so that I can serve. And I think that's, a, for me, an extraordinarily big shift, a small shift inwardly, but a big shift in my capacity to be of service to the world. Mm. And that's the job of a leader, right? To, to, to serve, to be of service, in service of something kind of bigger, higher than ourselves. I'm curious about your last job at LinkedIn as well. You said it was head of mindfulness and compassion, but before that you was, was it global VP of operations? So to the, the casual onlooker, that's <laughs> right. not a, a, nat, a natural career progression or move. So <laughs> not at all. How, how did that come about? And can you tell us a little bit about, about that role? Sure. Well, I had this career for 25 years in tech and in leadership and kind of culminating at LinkedIn, I was the VP of global customer operations, which is essentially all of the customer facing or most of the customer facing stuff that's not sales. So customer service and customer success and things like that. And I had a team of over a thousand people spread out over the world, 
you know, and LinkedIn is a company of 15,000, just to give the things in perspective. And so it was one of these big jobs, one of these kind of 24 by seven global jobs. And as we've talked about, I've had this other part of my life where I've been doing this, you know, meditation practice or something like that. And I found that LinkedIn was such an open place. You know, we talk about being your full self at work. And I'm like, this is amazing. Maybe, maybe this is a place where I could finally bring that other part of my life. Because I had never talked about my personal practice at work before. I was covering that part of myself, right? Right. And I'd gotten to this place in my life where I was much more comfortable in my own skin. Uh, and to be honest, it was partially because I'm partly because I'm older. I was in my mid forties, partly because I'd been really successful financially and successful career wise. So I felt the stability to take this kind of risk. And it started with me leading one meditation session at work, you know, on a Thursday afternoon, but it took me months to get up the courage to do that. I was, I was terrified because I was thinking, what are people going to think of me? You know, what is this going to do for my brand? You know, all this silly ego stuff. But I finally did it. I got over myself. And that first time there was one guy there. (laughs) So imagine, you know, we're sitting kind of facing each other. I'm sure this dude was just as terrified as I was because I never saw him again. (laughs) (laughs) But the next week there were three. And the next week after that there were five. It became a regular thing. And then people found out that I did it, you know, and that's kind of the meditation exec. So I would get invited to do bigger events. Like the CFO held a summit with 400 finance people and invited me to kick it off with a meditation. Wow. Like, think about that. That's pretty interesting, right? Yeah. And it just blossomed over time. I raised my hand to be the executive sponsor of a mindfulness program. We didn't really have one. So myself and a bunch of other volunteers created one and did that for a few years. And then for me, the tipping point was our CEO at the time, gave the commencement address at Wharton, which is a very serious and buttoned down place. And he talked about compassion. You know, if you're going to be successful in life, if you're going to be successful in business, be compassionate. And then the next day he's on TV. And this is all the reporters want to talk about is compassion in business. And I was thinking, okay, it's time. It's time for me. I'd been in this ops role for six years. I was ready to do something else. And I was ready to invest my career in this other space. But it was also time for LinkedIn because essentially our CEO had effectively told all the employees of LinkedIn that compassion was the most important thing they could do. What did that even mean? Like, how are we going to operationalize that? Yeah. And so, you know, I'd spent the last 25 years as an ops guy. I knew exactly how to operationalize it. And so I made a pitch to, to him, our CEO, and to the head of HR. And collectively, we created this role, head of mindfulness and compassion programs, where my vision is to change work from the inside out by mainstreaming mindfulness and operationalizing compassion. So it's pretty much the coolest job in the planet, I think. Yeah, it does sound sound pretty cool. And <laughs> how long did you have the job for? I did it for three years. Right. And then, uh, you know, my plan was to build things for LinkedIn employees and then bring them to the world. And the bring them to the world part started during COVID when I wrote this book. And then I really realized I wanted I wanted my audience to be the entire you know workforce of the 3.5 billion of us in the workforce not just the 15,000 of us at LinkedIn yeah 
I may well be wrong. Like LinkedIn, for all that you said, it's um, quite open and you felt it was the company where you could start to kind of bring your full self to work. Sure. It also strikes me again as a casual observer and customer of LinkedIn for many years that it's probably a fairly numbers orientated business that likes data. Like how did that fit with the with the role and kind of did LinkedIn like strive to try and measure the impact of of your role and focusing on compassion? And what did that all look like? I think a couple of parts. I mean, one, there was a lot of trust because of my experience and my relationships at LinkedIn. So mostly it was a, hey, Scott, you know the space better than anybody. Go figure this out. Okay, so a lot of trust on this side, so I appreciate that. And then on my side, I'm a business guy. I'm a numbers guy. I want to know. And so I wanted to dig into the ROI. And I came at it in a number of different ways. So first of all, I measure consumption and customer satisfaction. Right. Meaning if we offer a program, does anybody show up? <laughs> consumption. Yeah. And in other words, is there interest? And two is, do people like it? And so we started there. Now, in outside of work, there are already well over 6,000, probably way more. That's five years old, that number. 6,000 peer-reviewed papers on the benefits of meditation. Right. So tons of research that already exists, how meditation reduces stress, reduces anxiety, improves quality of sleep, improves creativity, improves quality of relationships, improves quality of leadership. All of that is well, yeah. that's well-worn trail. We already know that. I think at some point we'll have hard data on, you know, does meditation improve uh, productivity? Uh, we, we did not get to that level of research, but that's, that's, I know that that has started to take place and I, I do think we'll find it. Um, but for me, I really, really appreciate the ROI when I hear about stories, yeah. you know, the anecdotes from people. So I had a young woman during COVID reach out to me. We'll call her Lisa. And Lisa's a young mom. She's in sales. And to the outside world, it's like a duck on the pond, right? You don't see the feet frantically underwater, but you see her gliding. She looks like she's got it all together, but she's got two little kids at home. And during the quarantine, you know, she had to homeschool them because daycare was closed. She was the primary, you know, doing the cooking and cleaning and all that stuff, in addition to hitting her very big number at work. And so it's a lot, right? And some of you know what that's like to try to do yeah. a lot. And so she reached out to thank me for the programs we were offering because she basically said, look, thank you. I am screaming at my kids a lot less. <laughs> and she said it in a way that I knew that she was kidding, but not really kidding. Uh, because these things have been hard. And she went on to say that she was just a much better mother. She was a much better partner. She was better at everything. She was better at work. She was more focused. She was just a better version of herself. And as she was saying it, I felt the weight of what that meant to her and how her life had changed at a really core way, in a deep way. And I was thinking, yes, this, this is why we do this work. I love that. It's such a powerful story and it it goes right to the heart, really, to one of my beliefs around around leadership that I think as leaders, it's really important that we understand that everyone we're leading is the most important person in the world to somebody else. And everyone has got a lot going on outside of work. And that slightly old fashioned view that you come to work and you park all of that stuff and you put your your work face on. It's just completely, it's nuts, really, because that that example, like if you are 
snapping at your kids at home. You're going to go to work like mulling that over and not feeling great because you snapped at your kids. So therefore, you're probably going to be stressed at work and you'll go home and you'll snap at your kids more and you just go round and round and round, right? Life can't be compartmentalized so neatly and just leave stuff at the door when you walk into the office. No. And this has been, I think, the fundamental big shift, the big lesson of COVID or quarantine time or whatever you want to call it. Because not only are we working at home, we're sleeping at work. Yeah. <laughs> right? There's, there is no separation. We, we can't even pretend. We're not even pretending that there's separation. We are all a person. And, you know, you guys know all the, the data around the great resignation or the great reshuffle or the great waking up, whatever you want to call it. You know, a third of Americans are suffering from anxiety or depression. 85% of us are feeling emotionally drained. 55% are going to look for their next job in the next 12 months. Nine in 10 say that they would work for less money to have more meaning, right? People are waking up to say, hey, why, wait, why am I doing this? Why am I working for this job, this boss, this manager, this company? And everybody's reevaluating what's important to them. Because it's been really clear when I ask people what's important, it's always one of two things in the last 24 months. It's my health, because it's clear that if I don't have my health, I have nothing. And two, it's my connections, my relationships. And so at work, people want meaning. They want to feel connected. They want their work development and their life development to be the same thing, because they know there's no separation. And so if you then take that as a leader, let's say you're a CEO of a company, well, it becomes super clear that you need to invest in people, invest in their mental well-being. Yeah. And this is the move we've made from the agrarian age to the industrial age to the information age, where the information age, our employees are by far the most important asset that we have. But our management practices are still rooted in the agrarian age or the industrial age. But if you think if we worked in a factory and you had all this expensive machinery and in the corner was your most expensive and highest output machine. And it was over there chunking and throwing off smoke and it was operating at 62% efficiency. Would you say, oh, we should spend money and make the upgrades and make the maintenance so that it gets to closer to 100%? Of course, that would be a no-brainer. No one would even ask you, oh, what's the ROI on this going to be? Yeah, yeah. Right? You would just go do it because it's so, so obvious. Only a, you know, a buffoon would not make that investment. Well, we're saying the exact same thing about our employees. Yeah. Why would we not invest in their mental well-being? Why would we not invest in their leadership skills, in their development skills, so they can be a whole person and move from a six to a 10 on their capacity scale? Totally. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, it's felt like such a amazing conversation where we've gone gone quite deep on a lot of stuff. And with that in mind, it almost feels wrong to ask a few quickfire questions, <laughs> but I'm going to ask them anyway because then kind of because then this episode gives gives something for for everyone as well. So, one I love to ask everyone that comes on the show really is what would you say is one book or the one book that really has had the the biggest impact on you? <laughs> Well, I'm going to answer it like this, and I don't quite mean it the way it might come off, but it's the one I wrote. <laughs> I wrote it during COVID time, and it's had the biggest impact on me because it is, you know, the story of my own journey. It's, it's the, all of me is in there, and writing it was transformational. 
And I'll give you the other answer too, which is the one I didn't write. I really like the book Influence by Caldini. Yeah. Uh, something like that. I may have it not quite right. It's like Influence, the Power of Persuasion. Yeah. It really was insightful to me on how the human mind works and how we ourselves are influenced by what's around us. Yeah, amazing. It's a great, great book. And what would you say is one item that if it was lost or broken, you'd immediately kind of have to replace (laughs) or repair? Sadly, I I would have to say my phone, which sadly I am addicted to. Um, (laughs) But if uh, a nicer answer, it's really my phone, but a nicer answer is my guitar. It was the first thing I bought when I could make money after university. and so if that was somehow lost, I would for sure immediately replace it. So I can see it hanging on the wall behind you, but listeners won't, won't be able to. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Got an idea how you might answer this one, actually, having been speaking to you for the best part of an hour. Uh, but what would you say is one productivity tip that really works for you that you would share with listeners? Because people always want to know about productivity, right? It might be counterintuitive. I think it's sleep. Right. We are chronically chronically undersleeped that's probably not a word but we're not getting enough sleep you know and that affects it's like that machine in the corner right if we don't get enough sleep the machine is over there chugging and clunking and working at 80 percent efficiency so it's actually counterintuitive our wellness starts with sleep and it's all the other things like hydration and diet and mental exercise whatever it is you do it's our own taking care of the machine Like if we think of ourselves as a machine or as a mammal, as an animal first, we can't go on to do those higher order things without the machine being super efficient. Yeah, Uh, that really resonates with me as a framework I often talk about with kind of some of my coaching clients, call it the, the five foundational elements. I basically talk about sleep, nutrition and hydration, exercise mental well-being so whatever that looks like for you prayer meditation or whatever and being clear on 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 your purpose and sort of the they're all really important to me like health and well-being is super important but if I've got a compromise on on one because often we do right to your point around seasons and as much as I love exercise and I know it makes me better at work it makes me a better husband better dad if it's a choice between exercise and sleep sleep always wins just because the the impact being sleep deprived has on us so probably sometimes my wife's frustration but i am super strict on getting enough good (laughs) good quality sleep Um, yeah i think if there's any young parents or people who have been parents for me the hardest time in life was when my kids were little and weren't sleeping and and to be sleep deprived is to kind of be a form of insane You know, you just realize how critical it is when you're waking up six times a night or whatever it is. It's like, wow, that's terrible. I never want to do that again. (laughs) Scott, thank you so much for your time. It's been a brilliant conversation. I've absolutely loved, loved chatting with you. Um, I loved where our conversation went. I just think there's so much value in here that the listeners are going to take from our conversation. So thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, best of luck with uh, what you're doing now. It's really, really great work. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And if anybody wants to stay in touch with me, you can find me at scottshoot.com. Awesome. We'll make sure we stick the uh, link in the show notes for everybody as well. 
So there you have it, folks. Episode 82 and my conversation with Scott Shute, which, as always, I hope you enjoyed listening. I hope you learned something. But most importantly, I really hope you're able to go away and make one small change as a result of what you've just heard. A quick one for you, a quick request before you go and do anything else. It would be amazing if you could go to Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to the show and take just a few minutes to rate, review and subscribe to the show. I say this all the time and it's 100% true. It really does enable us to keep bringing you more and more episodes of the show. If we don't get those ratings and reviews, the show in the future will cease to exist. So it would be massive. I'd be massively grateful, sorry, if you could do that. That's it for this episode, folks. Hope you enjoyed it. Look after yourselves and lead on. Mm-hmm.